people analytics, and I actually gave this spiel at a, at a people analytics workshop I had where we had a focus on um, social justice. And I would say as people analytics professionals, I have an obligation to not forget this is about people, right? So yes, we focus on data and we talk about data, 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 but don't forget about the people in people analytics, right? And the human-centered approach and the importance of that in anything we do. We are doing this in service of the human that just happens to have an impact on business results, right? But never forget about the people in people analytics. That's Roxanne Lotso, an expert on the intersection between people and data analytics. Rox, as her friends call her, obtained her PhD in industrial organizational psychology and statistics from the University of Minnesota. Rox has worked in a number of people analytics, strategy, and leadership development roles, including working as the head of people analytics at Cloudflare, a senior consultant at Hogan Assessment Systems, and global lead of human capital analytics at Cargo the global food production company and the largest privately held company in the United States in terms of revenue. People analytics is an emerging field that involves using data to help people and organizations be successful. It involves a data-driven decision-making approach when it comes to people, which requires both deeply understanding what the data tells us and what it doesn't and the infinite complexities of people. Today, we're going to have a conversation about human behavior in the workplace, people analytics, leadership development, and what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong when it comes to helping individuals and organizations be successful. Rox, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. It's always fun to talk to you. I uh, We've known each other for, I don't know, a couple of years now, and I am always entertained when you were in my inbox, and you're one of the few people outside of the company that everyone in the company knows about. We met back when you were teaching a certification course, and my first impression of you was, wow, this woman is brilliant and chill. <laughs> And also atypical from the average person who's in the industrial organizational psychology profession. You know, uh, most people in the profession, I think, can be somewhat dry and, uh, you know, uh, focused on, I don't know, like, you know, the smallest, flattest nuance of things. But you were engaging, you were interesting, and you were really smart. So, as somebody who sort of comes from the clinical psychology side of the house, I've always felt that uh, industrial organizational psychologists are really strong on the workplace part and a little light on the human part. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we met, I really thought, wow, this woman knows people. Um, so I was wondering, one, what were your impressions of our first meeting and uh, what led you into this profession? Yeah, absolutely. So, So I would say... You know, when I um, was doing assessment certifications at Hogan, I was meeting, you know, 20 to 30 new people every couple of weeks virtually during their certifications. And 
Um, I think the same can be said for a lot of people who take any sort of workshop. Some people you have a, a really quick, really easy dynamic with, and some people it's a little harder. And I think, Jason, with you, I think I instantly picked up on your your sarcasm that you're you're definitely <laughs> right. And I think we no. We're also very very interactive in the group, and we had somewhat of a challenging group, if you recall. There was a few incidents during that um, yeah. workshop that we had to kind of address. So I think you just really fit in well with my vibe, right? And I think not everybody does. But I think, you know, how did I get into this? So I would say the one commonality throughout my entire career has always been some sort of measurement or research approach. So now we call that people analytics. But I've been doing kind of quantitative stuff my entire career. So yes, I was that super math statistics nerd growing up. But I was also the jock. I also played a lot of sports. I also had a lot of hobbies and a lot of interests. So I've always kind of um, straddled the fence in terms of that very practical analytical side, but also that very relationship oriented side. And I think kind of finding the field of IO psychology, um, which is the mix of the human interaction with the, the analytics and the data and the measurement approach was kind of a perfect combination for me when I found that. Now, I think what also adds to um, some of what my approach has turned into throughout my career is my in-depth exposure to coactive coaching, that concept, which I was exposed to during my time at Cargill. We had an internal training. And I not only went through that training, I actually helped facilitate that training for the next number of years while I was there. So I think having that exposure to just being able to connect with people in a very different way, being able to ask powerful questions being able to facilitate a conversation, to debrief people around conversations or topics that sometimes aren't that easy, you really need to be able to read the room and adjust your approach. And if, if I might throw in a quote here, here's a quote I found that I think really embodies my approach. And that quote is, I'm not always going to say the things the perfect way or the right way, but I'm going to say how I feel. Now I'm going to give you one guess as to who said that. Let's go with Kanye West. Yes, bingo. <laughs> the most logical quote I've ever um, heard from Kanye in terms of one that I actually identify with. But I think it's the perfect embodiment. Is I, I think in all of this work, I don't care if you're a leader or you know working on a team, if you're doing leadership development, if you're doing coaching, whatever it is, you have to be authentic. And I would say in all of the, the work around leadership development and coaching, it's being a, an authentic person and a human to interact with others that really yields that different type of relationship and success. Yeah, it's funny you it, it, it's funny you say that. So, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people may not know about coactive coaching is that, you know, it's goal focused like most coaching, but it really has a lot to do with to your point asking those super powerful questions that can be impactful for people. Um, but one of the things, too, I love about the coactive sort of model, it starts with the idea that people want to change. They want to transform. They want more from life. All these kinds of fundamental things. And that by asking as coaches these powerful questions, we can help them on the journey. And it makes me think of, you know, one of the sort of trends in general when it comes to leadership development is sort of like the strengths-based model. Mm -hmm. and, you know, positive psychology. And I think one of the blind spots there is that it focuses certainly on our strengths, which we all often already know, but may need reinforcement about, but it ignores the idea that the whole purpose of development, 
right? We we call it development, whether it's professional or personal, is about affecting change. Yep. And it just makes me think, how do the, those two things sort of go together, that coaching and development space and also the people analytics space when it comes to change? Yeah. So I think, so when we th- talk about people analytics, so I want to call a couple things out and I, I have strong opinions on this and people might not agree, um, which is very typical for many of my opinions, but so people analytics is not new. So IO psychologists have been doing people analytics for decades and decades this field kind of started to emerge maybe 10-ish years ago as a unique function. So we had talent COEs, we had talent management teams, maybe we had um, kind of operations team doing more transactional stuff. And there's a realization that it all involves data. So how do we start to pull out people that are working on data things and kind of make it this people analytics team? So people analytics, it's really about how do we use all the data we have about our talent to make better business decisions, just like we might use our financial data or our customer data or outcome data to make better business decisions. So it's really kind of elevating the role of the human capital to think about human beings at work, our assets. How do we take what we know about them and help drive better business decisions? So I think the intersection there where that works into maybe development or coaching is, you know, how do we use what we what we know about people, what people need to be successful, where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, where there's opportunities, what are their derailers? How do we use a statistical, scientific, psychometric approach to measuring, uh, well, number one, to developing tools that help us measure people in different ways? And number two, measuring the success of those tools. Do we have tools? Do we have processes? Do we have programs that are actually enabling, enabling people to be better and do better work? Because let's just be real. The fundamental reality of any leadership development program, anything like that developed in an organization is to make the organization more money. A nice side effect is you often develop self-awareness. You might give people life-changing experiences like in coactive coaching. It can be very life-changing and transformative just in terms of how you think about your interactions with other people, right? So analytics, any sort of measurement approach is really around how do we use these tools we have in HR teams to really help enable high performance. Yeah. And I sort of think that they're, you know, to your point, yes, industrial organizational psychology, all the way back to Maslow and beyond, um, you know, has always dealt with data. Like if you said they weren't dealing with data or what we call analytics right now, I'm not sure what they were doing um, Mm -hmm. before. But to your point, yes, it really has been elevated to make human capital much more strategic. I was kind of laughing as you were talking. You had said that when you were growing up, you were a nerd. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my God, this woman clearly has no self-awareness. But then I was thrilled <laughs> to hear you say you were also a jock mm-hmm. at the same time. And and it, it was really clear to me as you were saying those things, how those two things can sort of come together in a field like this, really understanding people and understanding data, which you don't find a lot of people who sort of balance those two things. And I was just curious, did it take time for you to sort of see the sort of these two connections between yourself and what to do? Because I would imagine there are not a lot of options. Right. So so I think it did, but I, I think I just kind of fell into it somehow. So I think about you know, as an undergrad, when I discovered IO psychology, I was a business major and my plan was to get an advanced degree in statistics. 
Then I took an IO psychology class and I thought, holy moly, this is the perfect balance between understanding humans and using data, right? And so, so I discovered that. Um, it wasn't really until grad school and even after grad school, my first job out of grad school, I was at Best Buy. And I refer to the t- my time at Best Buy, I was there twice a lot because it actually was some of the most compelling, innovative analytics I've ever done, but it was also very much a very um, intense growth experience for me. And so part of what I did at at Best Buy at that time, and it, it's funny, we talk about Strengths-Bates approach because Best Buy at that time was a strong component of Gallup. And we used StrengthsFinder and the Gallup Q12. And I had the fortune, something I really loved and something I think is really important for any any person in people analytics or any sort of measurement team who's working in a, an organization where there's units of analysis like a store or a plant to get out there and spend time with people. Because it's not until I was able to go to stores uh, all over the US, in Mexico, in Canada, and interact with store associates, have conversations, see the enthusiasm and the, you know, pun intended engagement, how much they love being there. And then going to a store where you walked in and you were instantly depressed because you knew there was not a great culture there. That for me really started to help make the connection between the human piece of it and the analytics and measurement piece of it. Because we we knew we had the data that we were able to measure the impact of that. I'm just going to call it an engaged culture mm-hmm. on financial performance. And we we're able to link also customer experience to financial performance. So you can tell the story that you go into a, a Best Buy, you have a terrible experience with an associate. You walk out of that store. Who do you tell? Literally everybody. Everyone. <laughs> Lord knows I do. You go in there and you have a good or great experience. You go out, you probably tell a couple people, but it's not as viral, right? It doesn't spread right. as much as kind of the, the impact of those negative emotions. So I, I used to go to store manager meetings, district meetings, and tell that tale kind of like, you know, the impact of somebody having a negative experience in the store because of a feeling of disengagement from the people that work in here will spread twice as fast as the impact of having a really, really positive experience. So actively think about what is the environment that I'm creating. And I can see how all those things sort of come together. I remember a couple years ago, I was reading this Harvard Business Review, I think it was there, article about the early efforts um, to do people analytics at Google. And the workers who are in the department that had it, it was within human resources, had this mm-hmm. sticker with a slogan. Mm-hmm. And it said, we have charts to back <laughs> us up. So yeah. F off. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not suspicious personally about HR department's ability to sort of collect data. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine, you know, with a couple of psychologists, they could get sort of insights on an individual level. But what I think I have a hard, harder time believing, and I think people have a harder time believing, is that organizations have a harder time imagining organizations actually being good at collecting all the data that they need mm-hmm. to sort of understand the, I guess, the statistical, the psychometric, the psychological and sociological factors that all come together to sort of measure the interplay between people. Because, you know, what we're really, that's what teamwork is all ultimately about. And so I imagine there are a lot of people who are embracing it. There are a lot of people who are doing it the right way or the wrong way. 
But like, what should people analytics really be? And what are the biggest challenges and opportunities in the field? Yeah. So, so I love that you mentioned Google because you, you really just jumped to a company and a team who's been committed to doing this type of work for well over a decade and a company and leadership, which is the most important piece, leadership that is committed to creating a measurement approach for whatever it is we need to measure. So you're absolutely right. A lot of things that we we want to measure or we need to measure to make decisions about people or understand the trends or patterns in our talent lifecycle, that data doesn't exist. Um, a comp- company like Google is a great example. They have a, an amazing, super, super smart team who can and will and has created the measurement strategy to measure whatever it is they need to measure. And these things have been written up, I think, is it Project Orange, something like that, um, where they looked at the, the eight behaviors that were uh, indicative of most effective managers. So I think so I, I think companies, there's a, there's a couple things that come to mind here. Is number one, we typically have a lot of data already, but it's very siloed and segmented. The talent acquisition team isn't talking to the L&D team. The L&D team isn't necessarily talking to the, the BP team. The BPs aren't talking to the recruiting team, right? And so it's like you're collecting all this data probably and you're creating all these programs, but you're not thinking strategically about the integration across the talent life cycle, right? So even if companies had a little bit more of a sophisticated lens on that, I think they'd be in a better place. Uh, now, having said that, there's also, I think from the top, you need the leadership and not only the, the leadership of the people team, but even broader than that, to understand the importance of measurement in the people space. So this whole people analytics thing, we, we've gone through this, this phase in maybe the last five years where a, a CPO hears about people analytics. and They're like, oh my God, we need a people analytics team. And then they, they hire somebody or they have somebody who's really good and nerdy or technical and they create dashboards about headcount and they think they're doing people analytics, right? So there's like a higher level advanced sophistication of data savviness that I think is really important at the leadership level um, that needs to be there to be able to do googly like things, right? I'm also, I mean, I could get really into the weeds of around the operating model and people analytics and what I think a successful company can and, can and can't do and what will enable that. But if you don't have leaders who understand it or they don't have to understand it, they have to let the leaders in the space and the experts do what is right and not get in their way. And I think that's that's probably something I see as a big factor in moving up that advanced analytics value chain is people getting in the way because they don't understand what people analytics is. And they they keep asking for very basic transactional um, types of outputs without even thinking or having an awareness of the big picture. They're hearing it as something trendy or it's the flavor of the month as a uh... Exactly. You know, as I call it, and they start a department, but it's not necessarily with a sort of strategic piece. One of the things that sticks out to me, this was really interesting in thinking about, and you know, I'm no expert in people analytics or analytics in general or statistics in general, but I was doing some reading on companies that seem to utilize it in creative ways. And Mm -hmm. there were three that popped into my mind in my reading. It was Apple, Intuit, and Google. And then I kept on thinking about that. And for some reason, I, I'd been thinking about those companies together. And I thought, is it their financial performance? And then I pulled a book off my shelf, and it's called The Trillion Dollar Coach. It's about Bill Campbell, mm-hmm. a university of, uh, or a Columbia University um, football coach who became the first big executive coach at Google, Intuit, and Apple. 
And I thought that was a kind of interesting parallel that the leaders in those companies not only seem to be invested in understanding people from a data perspective, but also seem to have a really embrace the idea of utilizing coaching. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I kind of think about that, um, you know, the certification where we first met was Hogan. And that's an assessment tool that is, it's a personality assessment tool that's based on a lot of sort of real world valid uh, data. And I, I just thought it was an interesting intersection between using data to help people get to the place uh, where the data tells you they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you you mentioned the strengths finder assessment or there's the Myers-Briggs or there are other assessments like that, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot of folks use that aren't really backed by data. And I'm wondering whether there's like an underlying values thing here for some of the leaders who embrace people analytics, who, mm-hmm. uh, who embrace coaching, who embrace this sort of strategic thinking about people. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, oh goodness. So MBTI, Strengths Finder, I'm not big fans of. But I think one of the the, one of the good company. (laughs) One of my issues is they are almost oh, I shouldn't say that. They are very consistently used for the purpose, used for a purpose for which they are not intended. MBTI and Strengths Finders were not ever developed or intended to be used in a selection context. Companies do that kind of crap all the time, right? And it's like you yep. can you can say it till the cows come home. That is not an appropriate or validated use or intention. And even the the companies and the founders will tell you that and people will still do it. Because I think executives, leaders who kind of start to hear about these things, they love a simple common language to describe things. And I think the MBTI and the Strengths Finder give a simple common language that makes sense. Introvert, extrovert. I get what that means right? Oh, I'm, I'm a maximizer. I'm an achiever. I have woo. People love those cute little kind of, you know, um, descriptions of their, their personality or their approach. Right. But it's, it's all about using it in the right context. A strengths finder coach goes through like, or it used to go through like a two hour certification to do a strengths finder feedback. And the poor person who was, who was tasked with doing that with me at Best Buy had probably the most challenging conversation in her life because the first thing I asked for was the technical manual that detailed the psychometric validity of this assessment. And she had no idea what the hell I was talking about. Uh, I've asked more than once myself. Did you you see that or read the book on the Myers-Briggs? It was uh, called The Personality Brokers, I think. Oh, I didn't read the book, but I watched the HBO documentary. Wasn't it called? I was... Yeah, I was just baffled. I did not want to believe it. As I, I, I watched the documentary First Persona, and I was like, people do not actually use the Myers-Briggs for selection. No one on the planet would. Because, you know, there's a use for it. It is great in the same way that uh, trivia is great for team building. It yeah. can be really, really fun to do all those things, to build a common language. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't really buy a house based on it or move right. or uh, marry based on it. But I was shocked when I read the book that there's so many companies that actually use some version of those assessments to select. I, I don't even understand how they make good choices based on that. Well, or make choices. Absolutely. I, I can remember 
my goodness, I was on a panel years ago somewhere. And I can't even remember the context. But the one thing I remember is a lady who had a small startup company saying, I'll only hire people if they have, I can't remember what the strengths were, let's say, achiever and woo. And I, I looked at this woman and I thought, what in the actual hell is coming out of here? <laughs> the one time I was able to control myself from speaking up about it. But I thought, this is the mindset that people are making decisions about. And I, I don't know, whenever I have, have conversations with people in the field or just miscellaneous conversations and people ask about assessments, I, I always say, if you were ever asked to take an assessment for the company, ask them what the validity of this assessment is and what it will be used for, what kind of decision making. Because I'm like, if they can't answer that for you, like run away. If run. they can't tell you what the validity is, then like you're done, right? Yeah, so- one of one of the sort of disturbing things about one of those assessments and the personality brokers lays it out fairly well mm-hmm. is they also contain traces of racism, sexism, oh ableism, yep. and even classist ideas. Yep. Is there something about sort of like using data that can sort of create a more sort of equitable world? Because I buy into the idea, you know, from a, a moral perspective, but also from a business perspective, that there are great, uh, great advantages to having an inclusive workspace, mm-hmm. uh, great advantages, business advantages to equity. But, you know, using these types of assessments seem to uh, run the risk of doing the opposite of that. So what, what, are, what are your thoughts of, on diversity, inclusion, and using data? Yeah, so. So I have a couple of thoughts. And the first one is the MBTI and the whole racist backstory is, is scary and fascinating. If you, you know, the, so like one of the authors wrote like a racist novel or something. Yes. yes. It's insane. So I, I think the issue we have, and a lot of, a lot of the reason I think people from different backgrounds question a lot of it is because who do we do the research on? White people, let, like, let's just be real. That's the reality of the most research, especially assessments that were. If we're lucky, it's white people, usually white men, but. <laughs> right? So you think about assessments developed like in the 50s and 60s when even clinical assessments, who are the populations? It's all white men, right? So, U.S. Army. Exactly. Um, oh my yeah. goodness. And so, so a good assessment, and I'm going to talk about Hogan because you and I are big Hogan fans. I worked for Hogan. Yep. Uh, and I, I will say, Hogan is absolutely, without a doubt, the most single scientifically backed, validated assessment tool that exists for the purposes of the workplace. So that I will stand by. That I stood by before I worked for Hogan. It's a big reason I went to work for Hogan. And I, I will stand by that um, no matter what, because it is a fact, right? And I, yep. part of what I was tasked with at Hogan often was having conversations um, with people from different backgrounds who said, well, I, you know, I have a profile and it's a very strong profile. And, you know, people are going to stereotype me and say, well, I'm, I'm a a woman of color and I'm just that stereotypical bitch because I have a really strong, bold score. Right. And so I think here's where we need to make the difference. The the difference is there's the statistical and psychometric element to designing an assessment. So Hogan is able to design assessments that from a statistical psychometric standpoint, do not differentiate between males, females, people of color versus not of color, different cultures, right? It's statistically designed. The questions are crafted and chosen based off of how they interact statistically to not have differences or gaps or produce kind of differential scores. That's the statistics part. Now we can throw all that out because people are assholes. Mm -hmm. And if my profile 
is is it presented to somebody and you put me as a a white female, a white man, a black female, uh, a black man, Hispanic female, Hispanic man, people are going to make assumptions immediately because we all have built-in stereotypes. So that I think is the real challenge when we think about inclusion and equity and diversity and assessment is that we're up against centuries of um, institutionalized racism and we can't get over that. So so of course there, there's going to be scenarios where somebody is stereotyped or scapegoated as, as being a bitch or being whatever, because you have a strong profile and maybe your personality shows up in a different, stronger way than another person might, for whatever reason. It might be cultural. Who knows what it is, right? So I well, think that- And I think what I, what I tell people when they ask me about that, you know, I explain to them, it doesn't discriminate based on race, mm-hmm. you know, n- national origin, gender, but the reality is you and I could have the same profile, but because I'm a black man and yep. people based on those same personality characteristics are going to treat us quite differently. And right. the solution to dealing with being, you know, a very colorful male versus a very colorful woman, the, the solution to change that reputation is, is going to be very different. Absolutely. And you, you have to remember also that that colorful profile shows up in different ways, right? I'm a very colorful person, but it doesn't show up in wearing bright colors. (laughs) Like literally that that can be how it shows up for somebody is like being very like physically colorful, right? That's not how mine shows up, right? It's probably not how yours shows up. So I think what we have to remember, and and this gets back to StrengthsFinder, MBTI, any assessment is the same score or kind of same dimension shows up differently for different people. And that's a really good assessment, a really good interpreter, a really good coach is going to dig in and help to figure out how does this show up for you? And I think we know that from the clinical side for, you know, for the longest time on the clinical side, when we looked at personality, we almost looked at it like it was a single scale. You know, you have borderline personality disorder, you have narcissistic, you have histrionic. But what we realize over time is that it really operates on a dimension where all of us are somewhere on each of those scales. It may not be disordered and it may not be a disorder, but all of us have some kind of tendencies in different directions. It's really the combination of those. Yep. And it, it comes back to that idea that even the best assessment tool requires a skilled practitioner to interpret it. And I imagine... It's the same way probably with people analytics data too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, What's one of that my- What's line? Lies, damn lies and statistics? Like- I lie and cheat with statistics or something. Right, right. One of my, um, I guess, issues, maybe it's not the right word, but one of my kind of problems with the field of people analytics is it's, I, th- I feel very strongly it's over-reliant on technology to tell the story instead of people telling the story. So I have a, I consider myself more of a, an expert in HR and talent strategy. Oh, and by the way, I happen to know how to measure things. So I've, you know, I've fallen into people analytics roles. There's people in the space who are super bright, doing great things, um, coming from very different backgrounds. And my question is, do you understand um, the science behind item writing on a survey? And like- I've run into write- that all the time where clients will come to me with survey data and I'm like, let me see the questions. Who yeah. wrote these questions? Exactly. You do not have the answers you think you have. And let's be real. Like, is it rocket science? No. But is there a science to it? Yes. How many people analytics practitioners could tell me 
um, about the reliability or internal consistency of a set of survey questions or what that means. I can tell you right now, probably very few people that I've worked with in the past in terms of clients as a people analytics professionals even know what that means, right? So I think there's a real balance there in terms of having that ability. Again, this for me, it goes back to having a foundational theoretical understanding of um, human behavior. And some of that is personality. Some of that is just a, a foundational theoretical understanding of the kind of the talent life cycle, right? The decisions we make, why people before, uh, behave in the ways they do and being able to integrate that and link that across. And, you know, I say that, and then I'm going to throw it all out the window and say, and sometimes none of that matters. So that's where like the intuition, <laughs> yep. intuition comes from experience, right? Yeah. I talk to people about that all the time, you know, in a clinical setting, you mm -hmm. know, you can know everything on earth about a disorder and you can almost predict the way that, that um, people are going to behave, but there's nothing quite like that moment in the room where you look into the person's eyes or you see their shoulder shift and you know, something volatile is about to happen. No data can tell you that, but something about, you know, the human's ability to observe. One of the things I was going to ask you about, like a lot of people would probably be surprised if they knew if you went back to the 1950s or you went back to the 1960s, that it was a real common view in the psychology community and among psychologic uh, or psychologists, excuse me, that leadership didn't really matter to the success of organizations. And I know it sounds absurd now, right? We had a lot of evidence that that wasn't true. Like, you know, mm -hmm. would the Civil War have ever been won and slavery ended without Abraham Lincoln? Or would there have been a Holocaust without Hitler? Or even, you know, would the British have done as well in World War II without Winston Churchill? Mm -hmm. um, but or even something like Putin in the uh, invasion of Ukraine, would it, would, it, would it have happened without him? You know, if you're Christian, if you're Islamic, if you're uh, Jewish, you've got Moses, right? Like, but the theory at the time was that success was really driven by situational factors. So you, if someone with Abraham Lincoln's values had been in his ch chair at that same moment, the same sort of successes could have happened. And, you know, I mean, it even applies to serial killers. Like, it's no wonder to me that it took until the late 1970s for the FBI to get a clue uh, about the way serial killers ticked, mm -hmm. because I think the profession at large, you know, was not appreciating the impact of behaviors and not recognizing that sort of personality, life experiences, values, and cognition all led to those behaviors and those behaviors had impact. So in this long-winded speech of mine, my first question is, do you believe leadership matters? Mm -hmm. And my second question is, if you believe leadership matters and you're actually a Canadian citizen, I believe, by birth, why didn't you go back to Canada when Donald Trump got elected? <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to start with the first one. Um, <laughs> so back in my, my retail days, I used to do these things called employee experience sessions, where I would go out to districts and meet with a bunch of store managers and talk about data and talk about how employee data relates to customer data, relates to financial data, as we discussed. But what I would do is I'd start out the, I'd start out the kind of, um, it was like a round table, I guess, right, with a picture. And here's the picture. So I hope I can describe this. It's like 
uh, it's like a, a line that's just been painted on the highway. You know, they have the machines and it's like the straight lines that go all the way down. But halfway down the line, there's um, a dead animal of some sort. Let's just say it's a groundhog. And the line goes right up to the dead animal, goes right around the dead animal and keeps going. So there's a little blip. So they avoided the dead animal. So I would show this picture and ask people, what does this tell you about leadership? And it was a fascinating way to start the conversation because they'd say their boss told them, no matter what happens, do not pick the the paintbrush up up off of that road. You have to paint one consistent line no matter what, right? You know, or it would be like, well, they were too lazy to to get out and move it. And so they just drove around it, but they didn't pick up the paintbrush, right? But the, the whole point of that story is leadership does matter because how you lead is very um, indicative. And it's research-based, scientifically backed, that the kind of leader you are directly impacts the performance and results that your team produces. So how do you get people to get things done? You can literally get a cattle prod and shock them every time they do something wrong or shock them that they're working so fast that they're just trying to get everything done hurriedly and probably making a ton of mistakes. Or you can encourage them and ask them how their day is going or, you know, have a really great conversation about like, Hey, you know, your son had a softball tournament this weekend. How'd that go? And engage them on a personal fundamental level to make them feel a, like a psychological connection with you as a leader and and the company. And they want to go in and do their best. And I, again, I go back to like a, like a manufacturing plant or a store of some sort where it's often a very family oriented. And, and that's a whole other story. Cause I, I just read an article today about why it's a problem to talk about companies as families. Families. Yeah. I, I spent some time, quite a bit of time actually in Thailand and Australia in uh, let's call them meat processing. I would say, I always say my company's a healthy family. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm in Australia and I'm at uh, Wagga Wagga. On in, I'm in a beef processing plant and I'm sitting there and they have employees from all over the world, refugees, people who would have nothing if it wasn't for this company. And the general manager knows everybody's names, knows everybody's kids' names, ha- mm. hosts parties for every different kind of cultural event and occasion. Mm. And you know why the people still work there? Because they love working there. They have this emotional connection. They will go and they bust their butts for 10 or 12 hours a day, chopping up cattle, right? To create, you know, it's not a fun or pleasant job for some parts of that. It's very physically taxing job. And I imagine a lot of those people are isolated. Like you said, refugees, they don't have their family or their support system. So, so what if that general manager walked in and scream, screamed at them and yelled at them every day, like get out there, bust your butt, or I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to fire you or you're not going to get a raise or whatever. Like, what is the impact? The, the people are probably still going to get some work done, but the the toll it will take on them and the downstream impact is they'll be less engaged. They'll probably be physically taxed. You're not going to get as much output. You're not going to get the outcomes you want and people don't want to come back, right? right? So absolutely right. leadership matters. And it's the ultimate irony because you and I both know that people in leadership development don't drink their own medicine. Yeah. I've never seen worse-led companies than leadership development companies, and I say that as someone who runs a leadership development company. Yeah, it's it's the ultimate irony, but uh, yeah, it matters. I just think there's, you know, there's so many ways to kind of go about this concept of leadership development. But I'll, I'll go back again to, you have to have 
senior leader commitment to doing the work. If you if you don't have leaders who believe in development for the purpose of not like making a, a stronger leader, making a better person, creating self-awareness with it, the ultimate outcome of driving business results, it's not going to work. And I think to that point, the point that you're making, you know, you see it in other professions, right? The blind spot, uh, therapists don't go to therapy, Uh, lawyers think they can be their own lawyer, doctors try to prescribe for themselves or their family members. I think being an expert in some some things can kind of insert a blind spot um, Mm -hmm. about those those Mm -hmm. topics. Can I get you to answer the Trump question though? Oh yeah. I'll see how I kind of skirted that. Um, (laughs) Not going to let you off that easy. I strongly believe that overall as a whole, Canada is a better country. I absolutely believe that. Um, but I also believe the the opportunity for making money is much higher here, <laughs> just given the, the availability process. Artist tundra. Yes. Uh, and it's cold as hell. Right. <laughs> I woke up in Austin, Texas to 40 some degrees, and I thought I was going to freeze to death. That's how soft I've become. So I can't go back, Jason. Are you ready? <laughs> well, I, you know, part of the reason why I was thinking about Trump actually was um, I, I was thinking more about the presidency in general. Like, I can't think of a more stressful job than that. Mm-hmm. You know, not 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 taking Trump off the hook here, mm-hmm. but I can't think of a more stressful job than that. Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned the Kanye West quotes before. And they're like two of my favorite Kanye West quotes are most people are slowed down by their perception of themselves. Mm-hmm. And one of my so he does have two logical quotes. Mm-hmm. And another one is that the prettiest people do the ugliest things. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me think, you know, one of the big problems that exists in the workplace, at home and marriages, mm-hmm. everywhere in life is that lack of self-awareness. People may see themselves in a more negative light than they really are. They may see themselves in a more positive light, but at the end of the day, they don't see themselves in the right light. And then with the prettiest people doing the ugliest things, I think about the idea of how you almost need to be most self-aware about, you know, what you're like when you're under stress or when Mm -hmm. your guard is down. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious when looking at it from something like a people analytics perspective, I tend to think data operates in a solid state, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other factors or financial stressors or business stressors Mm -hmm. or other things that can come into play where where the data almost becomes stale for that moment. COVID, for example. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you account for those? Because I I think about it from a leadership development perspective that you really want to know yourself under stress or when you're not paying attention. But how is there a company version of that same thing? Um, well, I, I think what, what we fail to realize in the field of IO psychology and people analytics and co- like any of this stuff is we're still dealing with humans. We can do all the research in the world, but it's all probabilities, right? Right. Um, yeah. and so I think that like derailers, you know, getting back to Hogan and I think one of the, the more amazing and talk um, a little bit about the concept of derailers. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of tagging off what you said, a derailer is basically, it's a it's a tendency that we have that on an average day can be something of a strength for people, right? And so I, I have this um, derailer called Colorful that we mentioned earlier. Colorful is kind of someone who can be socially outgoing, 
bubbly, talkative, fun to be around. But when that becomes overused, when it becomes a derailer, and a derailer is something that can detract from your relationships or your performance, is when it becomes overpowering. So I think a good example of a, a colorful person who's using that in an unproductive way is someone who's taking the center of the stage and talking and laughing and joking. And in the middle of a crowd, nobody's listening or people stop listening 10 minutes ago and they don't care. And they just want Roxanne to shut up. And, <laughs> I think everyone says this about me when I'm in a meeting. Yes. Well, I, I, that's why I said Roxanne, not Jason. So I didn't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> oh, don't worry. <laughs> My other derailers protect me from that. Oh, well, that's the beauty of derailers, right? But just think about like any characteristic or tendency you have that when you're caught off guard or put, put in a moment of stress or a series of stressors that it comes out. So for me, and this came out a couple of weeks ago is this like level of impatience that I say something that I will regret. Right. And so I've had many, many coaching sessions and it still happens after, you know, 15 years of coaching around this, when I'm under the right circumstances and the right triggers or the right people, I can't help myself. Right. So it's like that Kanye quote I, I mentioned earlier, like you're always going to know how I feel or what I'm thinking, especially under stress. So really this concept of self-awareness is around how do we learn to manage our derailers or use them in productive ways? How do we learn to recognize when we're about to do that thing that we know is going to harm our relationships? And so like another derailer from the Hogan assessment that I, I like to talk about, because I think it's a really obvious one, is this is called reserved. And reserved has multiple facets, but kind of one of the key markers of reserved is somebody literally going and hiding so people can't find them, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, but say you have a, a leader at work, and we talk about this a lot um, when we talk about Hogan's um, certification is, you know, the, the person at work, if you're in the office who is with has their door closed all day long, right? And so they're like hiding in their office and you can never go in there. Or you're too scared to go in there, right? And so I think yeah. derailers are... Again, one of, I think one of the key key things that the Hogan assessments have provided to the literature when thinking about assessment and personality is this concept that there are things that can really help you in some ways, but under the right circumstances, actually do the exact opposite and actually really, really harm your reputation and relationships at work. And I think that's an important point that you're making, that they're actually sort of strengths that go too far. Mm -hmm. um, and because really, all, like the way that I think of them is just that they're coping mechanisms yep. and they can be very, very adaptive until they are maladaptive. So you gave the example of reserves. I'm high on some of the elements of the reserve scale myself. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'll do when I'm really stressed out, and this never shows up when I'm like really relaxed or just not paying attention to things, I will close my office door mm -hmm. Um I will sort of isolate and, you know, humans being humans, they don't interpret that as like, I need time alone. They interpret that as God, uh, I did something wrong or he doesn't have time for me or whatever version of it is. So it's very funny. So what I did was I took my desk, which used to be at the back of my office and you had to come walk in, sit in a couch or a chair. And I literally put my desk right near the front door and mm -hmm. have been doing my best to keep the, door open. And one of the things I think about, regardless of what your derailers are, or whether you have all of them, like one of the most important things for leaders and in life is actually being able to be adaptable, mm -hmm. to know that 
moment, like everyone knows, like if you want the world's best typos, ask me. If you want someone who's not going to follow a process and is going to come up with some other way to get there, ask me. But there are these moments where I become the most process-oriented person in the building. So I think there's something to be said for the beauty of being able to kind of switch out of of your natural tendencies at the right moment. Absolutely. So I, I used to always say a derailer is only derailer when it becomes a derailer. Right. Right. Otherwise, right. everything's fine. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, just in general, since we're sort of like touching on this, you know, industrial organizational psychology deals with lots of things recruitment, selection. I almost think sometimes too many things placement, promotion, it's got training in its portfolio, performance management, a lot of what t- uh, rewards, motivation, you know, mm-hmm. quality of life. It even deals with ergonomics. But a lot, a lot of things are tied together there by like what we're talking about people and, and also data. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, like what are organizations or the people who lead them getting wrong about people and what are they getting right about people and wrong about development and right about development? Do you have general thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh goodness. So I, well, the good old answer, it depends Right. So I think more mature, sophisticated organizations have gone through some of those growing pains and are more likely to be getting things right in terms of, you know, okay, here's here's how we're going to think about development for emerging or high potential leaders. Here's how we're going to think about development for the next business unit leaders. Here's how we're going to think about development for frontline workers. Right. And so an organization who's maybe toyed around with this a lot, I think is really good at thinking at different levels and kind of different, um, kind of, if you think about like that. Not a one size fits all. Exactly. Right. And what I think companies, smaller companies, newer companies, less, less mature or sophisticated. And I, I don't mean those as disses. I just mean like a company that hasn't been around as long or has more junior leaders without as much experience tend to focus only on Oh, we have to do VPs and above. We can only do development for VPs and above. And I'm like, that's important, but you're missing all your future leaders of the company because you're not going to just be continually hiring VPs from outside. You know, you're actually working on developing people. So I think kind of having a, a one, a singular focus is a big mistake. I think having one team own it without having input mm. from teams, without having input from senior leaders in HR, we should not be developing anything sitting at our desks, looking at a a piece of research or looking at a book and coming up with a program. We should be developing based off of strategic business conversations with the leaders around, well, what do you need in your business? Business A might need to upscale all of the um, high potential leaders because we know we're going to have five people retire in the next five years. You know, business B might be in startup growth phase. Like, We actually need to think about hiring tons of people because we don't have the people internally right now, right? Yeah. So you really have to understand the strategy of the business. And this goes back to- Because none of it really matters without understanding the context, the organizational context, the culture, the strategy. Exactly. And so I think just, I I think what's missing a lot, and we we touched on it very early, like what is people analytics? I don't view my job as serving the HR team. It's the last team that I think I serve. I I view my job as serving the needs of the business and aligning to business objectives, right? So how how does the um, 
the insights that I glean, the data that I analyze, the tools that I produce, how do those actually help drive that business strategy from a people lens? Well, one of the things you mentioned before, you mentioned that idea of, you know, like looking at it from a one size fits all versus looking at different levels or within different business units. I, you know, it made me think about the idea that it's sort of like a bell curve. When you're a baby startup and you're five or 10 people, you can really look at individual job roles, individual people. You have an opportunity to really look individually. But as you start to scale up, you're that medium sized startup or that medium sized business. It's harder to, you know, use those same skills looking at the individuals when it was like five people in a garage working together as, you know, it once was. And that's kind of like a play where I think data can be super helpful. And my experience has always been the best work I've ever done with companies or any organizations has been when I had endorsement from the top, right? It was a part of their strategy and I had free reign to go anywhere to find anything about anyone um, in Mm -hmm. any corner. So is that the kind of approach you're thinking companies in that spot need to be able to sort of embrace to be successful or to make it to that next level? Mm -hmm. I I definitely think that's part of it. And I I love what you mentioned about you could go to anyone at any time. I, to this day, depending, the, the least hierarchical organization I've, I've worked in that I felt was actually the largest organization I've ever worked in. Right. And that was very much a cultural thing. The most hierarchical, well, the one of the most hierarchical organizations I've ever worked in is one of the smallest organizations I've ever worked in. And it's just a really strange thing. And I think it's, it's industry. It's um, some narcissism, right? I yes, think. has a lot to do with the leader. A lot right? of, a lot of um, in the startup tech industry, especially, you know, there's just a different, very different type of leader oftentimes, right? That's a stereotype, but mm-hmm. validity to it. Well, and there's a lot of data around the idea that entrepreneurs, what makes entrepreneurs successful is not yep. what makes leaders successful. Exactly. Kind of like the Steve Jobs Yep. Very successful entrepreneur, terrible leader. Tim Cook probably wouldn't be a great entrepreneur, excellent leader. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what's what's key for leaders in this space is I think the ultimate self-awareness is when a leader realizes that they've reached their maximum potential in that space. And that either means that they need to exit or they need to start to hire people who are filling those gaps, right? But that's like a tough thing to do. I mean, well, mm-hmm. take Twitter as an example. <laughs> or even Tesla and Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to let go when you have all that control. It's hard to let go. But I mean, if you think about Tesla, Elon Musk isn't making any of those decisions. He has people leading the businesses who are leading the innovation. So in a way, he has let go a little bit. Yeah, I, I think like Steve Jobs is actually a good example of somebody who probably didn't let go because, you know, he was involved he wasn't necessarily involved in the minute details, but he knew exactly what he wanted the final outcome to be. But then he said, go make it happen. Right. Yeah. So he yep. knew he knew he was very clear on how he wanted an iPhone to look and operate, but he didn't know how to make it happen. And so he did, I think, surround himself with people who knew how to make it happen. Right. He right. probably was a pain in the butt because he was so particular and that high aesthetics. Uh, right. But he, yep. he did know, like, I can't build it. 
Here's the end state. Don't know how we're going to get there. Not right. letting up if you tell me you can't get there. Exactly. Exactly. This this concept that, and I can remember like back to my retail days, there was a conversation around, do we want store leaders to be really good business, uh, really good at producing outcomes or be really good at relationships? And the answer was both, but not everybody was both. So it was really actually a strategic conversation around, well, how do we make sure that a leader who's really good at business has a team supporting him or her? or whomever, that is actually really good at the relationships piece? How do we make sure that somebody who's really good at the relationships piece has people who really have that strategic business mindset? And you know how you do this? Assessment and leadership development and team. <laughs> all that kind of stuff, right? Recognizing those, those elements to it. I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, as somebody who has been in senior leadership roles, who mm-hmm. understands sort of assessments and understands people, there's some perennial challenges that organizations run into, whether it's like the startup leader not letting go or, you know, the corporate scandals from Enron to FTX or mm-hmm. even, you know, I know post George Floyd, people have been very focused on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. But as long as I've been alive, people mm-hmm. have been focused on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. They may have called it just diversity. But it's yeah. been the same thing. And I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who understands people, also mm-hmm. understands data, happens mm-hmm. to know about data, like why do you think we keep on ru- banging our heads against the same challenges over and over again? Because we're human. And I, I think we forget. So the George Floyd thing is a great example. It actually annoys, I mean, I think it's good, but I find it highly annoying, all these organizations that it took George Floyd for them to say, oh, we need a leader in this space. Why did it come to George Floyd? And I have some friends who work at different companies who are like, oh, I'm so proud. Our, our CEO put out this message and it's so encouraging. I'm like, that's great. Why did he or she put it out now? Like, why, why did they have to wait till this thing happened? Right. And so I yeah. think, oh, it's just such a tough one because, again, really important work. But the fact that it takes a, a dramatic event like that, that actually kind of puts a a lens on you if you don't have that team or that leadership or a commitment to doing that work. I was like, I think that's the wrong reason for doing it. And people struggle in those roles now, have gone into these newly created roles. And guess what? Um, they're promised all these things. They, the CEO or whomever says, oh, we're going to do this. It's going to be amazing. There's a whole campaign. And guess what? It's a struggle every step of the way. Yeah, because the fundamentals haven't ultimately changed. I, I mean, yeah, I suspect the companies that are doing really well when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion have been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion for a long, yep. long time. Yep. Um, Absolutely. And that George Floyd wasn't wasn't the beginning of it. Or yeah. even the, the companies where women truly have a seat at the table, mm-hmm. chances are they've been they didn't need a headline. <laughs> to, well, exactly. It's always been fundamental and important. Yes, absolutely. And and it's the same as people analytics. Uh, like you said, the, the concept of diversity and inclusion has been around for decades, right? I, I'm on my, my first job out of grad school uh, 20 some years ago at Best Buy, there was a diversity team at that point, right? And it yep. took companies of that size 10, 15 years to get there, right? So it's just really mind boggling. And so it's really from you, from your perspective, it's that we can have all the data in the world. We can have even the best ideas in the world, but it's sort of that human frailty mm-hmm. that 
those blind spots we have about ourselves or the blind spots we have about others or the unconscious biases that tend to get in the way. That seems to be like, a, to me, a fairly strong argument for personal development, using yeah. assessments that are good, a strong argument for trying to grow and look out for your blind spots. Are there other suggestions that you have that that leaders could take to help sort of uh, sort of address some of those issues? Yeah, so I I think uh, the development piece via assessment, and you know, not only personality assessment, there's DEIB assessments, cultural competence assessments, kind of just focusing on that area that you can give to leaders to help them understand where some of their blind spots and gaps are. Now you're going to have a huge amount of resistance, of course, right? Um, my personal thought is. I want every leader that I work with to read Nice Racism by Robin DiAngelo because it is about mm. how white progressives perpetuate the problem but think they're the solution, right? And it's mm. it, it's it's for white people. It's it's not for people from other backgrounds. Let's just be real about who the intended audience of this. But like I, I mean, there's a reality to that idea that I mean, it's very interesting. It's, as someone who's a black man, I think of two things. You know, one exactly exactly what you're saying that racism is almost a challenge of white people, mm-hmm. um, and not just that we are challenged by white people, but it is really you know like the book argues part of their challenge. But progress can't be made without white people mm-hmm. because that's where the power is. You see it in the 1960s in the civil rights movement. I I always joke, thank God for your you know white ancestors who decided to free us because that was the only way it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know. So let me tell you a little story. So on MLK, I took my employee who is uh, of Nigeria. I always like to joke on uh, Martin Luther King Day. I work to celebrate the fact that I now get paid to work. Oh, well, I, I went to see ta Coates here in Austin ah. and got front row tickets, which is pretty cool. And he said a number of really amazing things. But one thing that stuck out to me, and I, I can't remember what the question was exactly or the context. But Ta-Nehisi and I actually had the same mentor in journalism. Yeah, oh, my God. Even car. Yeah. So cool. I love that. He said something to the effect of, you know, being where I am, I have the, um, I don't know, he didn't say advantage, but I have the advantage or the opportunity to be around a lot of very rich, powerful white people, like the top of the top. And he, I'm paraphrasing, he basically said, they're dysfunctional as hell, right? (laughs) He's like rich, powerful white people are have done it right and have all these things going on he's like no and now this is like the roxanne version of what he said is like they're more messed up than anybody else in some ways and i was like oh my god like it's like that tv show succession if you think that being rich and famous is is great no no (laughs) it's a lot more dysfunctional than you might believe about myself right now like they're all they're all messed up and i was like okay how can i use this quote um going forward how do I bring this up, you know, in work context to kind of remind people that just because you're very successful doesn't mean you're not just as dysfunctional as anybody else. But it was just really like so, so spot on and poignant. Well, um, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was I was telling you about these friends of mine, both smart. They sold, uh, sold their company during the dot-com boom, made a lot of money. Yeah. Um, some of the same challenges that you're talking about. 
But then they were struggling financially with the business that they had later in life. And I pulled the husband aside and I said, I think you're making the mistake of thinking because you got rich when you were really young, that it was because you were brilliant, not because... And I think sometimes people will look at really famous people or they'll look at CEOs. And Mm -hmm. I know from a writer, I saw this often, but or when I was a writer, they'll look at these famous people and think they must have both charmed lives and must have the right answers. And Mm -hmm. I often think they're much better answers, far below them and a lot less dysfunction at times. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am. So let me think. First, I want to thank you and also give you a chance if you if you have any sort of closing thoughts um, that you wanted to share. Mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to take us back to something really simple is that people analogs and I actually gave this spiel at a a people analogs workshop I had where we had a focus on um, social justice. And I would say as people analytics professionals, I have an obligation to not forget this is about people, right? So yes, we focus on data and we talk about data, 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 but don't forget about the people and people analytics, mm-hmm. right? And the human-centered approach and the importance of that in anything we do, we are doing this in service of the human that just happens to have an impact on business results, right? But never forget about the, the people and people analytics. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think, you know, as we've sort of focused more on data or elevated, I think is the way that you put it, elevated data. I think sometimes, um, you know, productivity shows up on a dashboard or engagement shows up on a dashboard, but really to the point you were making before that engagement shows up, you can see it when you walk in the room of that Best Mm -hmm. Buy or you go and visit that, you know, movie theater or whatever spot you're at. And you can also see quality of life there. And one of the cool things in listening to what you're saying is it sort of sounds like there's a real intersection there between the quality of employees' lives mm-hmm. and also the financial results. And that people analytics seems to be something that we could use to leverage to, mm-hmm. to sort yeah. of get both of those goals. Yeah. And so this is our next podcast is really the concept of well-being, because I think after the, the p- pandemic brought out completely changed, I think, the focus for a lot of people analytics teams. And like Microsoft is a, is a great example of a company, I, th- I think they call it employee thriving, that really started to focus on that, right? So I think the pandemic has really um, forced the shift to focus more on well-being, and rightly so, and it's about damn time. Well, Rox, I wanted to thank you again and thank all the listeners for joining us for this conversation We're looking forward to being with you again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.